0: email from Catherine Kelleher of henrescue.org New South Wales Australia just want to say your interview with Brian Kateman the reducetarian really made me think I was expecting not to like his ideas as I was listening though what Brian said really resonated there's no way my dad or brother will go vegan at this point but I can now see a way forward with my family and a couple of days later An update from Catherine. My dad has agreed to Meatless Monday starting today. He's really excited about it. He also asked lots of questions about eggs and why they're cruel, so I think he'll be reducing those too. I'm thrilled because dad has always been closed off to this stuff before. By the way, I am writing this with a very cheeky baby turkey on my shoulder. She's called Snowy and fell off a truck on her way to a factory farm. You would love her. I'm sure I would. (laughs) This is Victoria Moran, and you're listening to Main Street Vegan, where we showcase every point of vegan view, every way to save animals and people and a most deserving planet. After the break, we'll be talking with author Nathaniel Altman about his book, The Nonviolent Revolution. And right now, we'll talk travel with the nomadic vegan Wendy Werneth. Wendy is a perennial globetrotter who for more than 18 years has visited 100 countries and counting. She was initially worried that going vegan would ruin travel, but she was shocked to discover that it actually made things not worse, but better. Wendy is the author of Veggie Planet. Uncover the vegan treasures hiding in your favorite world cuisines. And she's the creator of the world vegan travel website, The Nomadic Vegan, where her mission is to help you make your own travels more rewarding, compassionate, and delicious. Joining us today from Lisbon, Portugal, The Nomadic Vegan.
2: Welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. This is such an honor. I have to tell you that when I became vegan, your podcast was one of the first resources that I came across, and I listened to dozens and dozens of episodes. And so you played such an instrumental part in my vegan journey, and being here now is such an honor.
0: Oh, bless you. That makes me really happy. And I think when I was at the VegFest UK maybe three years ago, someone stopped by my table from Portugal, and somebody else was from lithuania and somebody was from russia and that was when i finally got it this Mm. podcast thing is really how to have global reach and i'm so so grateful that uh, it's part of your journey so speaking of journeys how did your vegan one begin
2: well, it was not quite three years ago, so uh, I'm still a fairly new vegan, especially compared to you, Victoria. Um, but for me, it started with an interest in health, actually. I um, my, hus- my, my husband, no, my father had uh, just recently passed away uh, from complications from type 1 diabetes, and I saw him die a very slow and painful death and knew I didn't want to end up that way, and so I suddenly became more interested in my own personal health and somehow i ended up listening to the food revolution summit with john and ocean robbins um who i know that you're familiar with john is the the author of diet for a new america and so he interviewed uh, all of these experts on plant-based lifestyle and and diet people who i had never heard before um and never heard their names before um but you know I started uncovering, uh, um The benefits of a plant based diet. And then the interview that I really remembered and that really resonated with me was with Alicia Silverstone. Uh, And that was a name that I had heard before. You know, she was kind of my idol when I was a teenager growing up. And she was the one who spoke about the animals and uh, about her connection with the animals and how that was her reason for being vegan. And then a few days later, I happened upon her book, The Kind Diet, at a used book sale. And I picked it up. And at that point, didn't think that I could ever go completely vegan, but in the book, she makes it so approachable where it doesn't – she doesn't approach it like you were just saying with the reducitarian concept. Um, that was what I needed too in the beginning because being completely vegan sounded just so unattainable. But Alicia, in her book, she said, oh, but you can just flirt with it, you know, just go to a health food store, buy some new ingredients that you've never tried before, try some of my recipes in the book, and, you know, just see where it takes you. And it took me to changing my life completely and uh, in in many wonderful ways that I never would have imagined. So the travel is
0: such an important part of your life, and I think many vegans, many veteran vegans say, you know, it's not really difficult. Well, you know, when you're on the road, it's pretty hard. You have
2: found it not so hard? Yeah, honestly, it really has enriched my travels in a lot of ways. And obviously, some places are more vegan-friendly than others. Um, But no matter where I've been, I've always found something to eat. I've, I've definitely never gone hungry. And in most places... You know, I actually have too many choices. So, you know, the the problem that I have is the opposite of what I had expected. I thought that, yeah, I was going to be just scrounging around for something to eat. And in reality, you know, I start finding all of these naturally vegan dishes, traditional dishes that are part of the local cuisine in the countries that I'm visiting. Or I find vegan and vegan-friendly restaurants that are opening up. There are more and more of them all the time all over the world. And, yeah, now that I have a blog where I write about these things, then I, you know, I say, oh, I'm only here for a weekend, but I have five different places that I want to eat at, and I have all these different dishes that I want to try. And, yeah, I end up having too many, um, and I don't have the time or the room in my stomach to to try them all. So that's a pretty good problem to have.
0: (laughs) Wendy, as a travel expert, give me my bucket list. I want to know the top three countries to visit as a vegan. Ah, good
2: question. Um... And I would say there are two different kinds of vegan-friendly destinations. So there's the, the vegan-friendly destination where there's a huge vegan movement there that's really booming. And so you have lots and lots of vegan restaurants. And also the more mainstream restaurants are adding vegan options onto their menus. And they're responding to this demand. Uh, so if that's the kind of place that you're looking for, I would say uh, Germany and Berlin in particular is really kind of the vegan mecca. Of Europe, um, and you know you can definitely do a foodie tour to Berlin and focus just on the food. Also, Barcelona and Madrid in Spain, or two other cities where there are just so many uh, vegan restaurants opening. So yes, all right. If we're going to go, can I can I cheat and and give you two answers? Sure. <laughs> Um, all right, so if we're going for that kind of vegan-friendly um, destination where it's because there's a big vegan movement, I would say Germany, Spain, if you're sticking to the big cities like Madrid and Barcelona, and then Thailand. Uh-huh. Um yeah, Thailand is uh, is really booming. And there you kind of have the best of both worlds, actually, because what I was going to say next was that, you know, the other option is to choose a place where the local traditional cuisine just happens to be naturally very vegan friendly. And there are lots of dishes that are already vegan or can very easily be veganized that you wouldn't necessarily know if you hadn't researched it a bit because you're not going to see lots of, you know, vegan labels on me- restaurant menus and vegan signs and Things like that, but the food is vegan nonetheless. And Thailand really has both in that regard. There is a, a booming vegan movement, particularly in Chiang Mai, um, among expats and Westerners, but also among local people. Uh, and that's more in the south in Phuket uh, in particular the Chinese immigrant population there I say immigrant population but they immigrated a hundred or 200 years ago um, so they are very firmly part of the the Thai community but they have their own vegetarian traditions and there's a nine-day vegetarian festival in Phuket and in other parts of Thailand as well um, which is essentially vegan they call it a vegetarian festival but but it's really basically a vegan festival uh, where you just have street markets where all of these stalls are selling all these kinds of veganized versions of all the local cuisine. Um, and then you do actually have, you know, lots of of dishes that are already part of the cuisine that are already vegan. Or, you know, if you could ask, like, maybe the most common form would be would have chicken in it. But you could easily ask for a tofu version instead because tofu, you know, is a common food that's used there. So, yeah, Thailand, I would say, really fits into both of those categories. And then a couple more um, vegan friendly destinations in terms of having a local, traditional, naturally vegan cuisine, I would say Italy and Greece would be my other top two. Oh, those
0: are beautiful places, and and all good climates, too. Glad you chose those. (laughs) So your book is, is pretty much hot off the presses, Veggie Planet. That's veggie with two Gs. Veggie Planet, uncover the vegan treasures hiding in your favorite world cuisines. And you've got all sorts of tips and information in there, even some recipes. And if you want a free sample chapter Go to the nomadicvegan.com slash veggie planet or, you know, just go buy the book. It's small and you know you want to go all these places. So tell us, Wendy, a little bit about the book and what caused you to uh, take that form as a prolific blogger.
2: Yeah, well, in the book, I focus on 11 of the world's most popular cuisines around the world, and I highlight some of the naturally vegan dishes that are part of these cuisines and show just how vegan-friendly they really are. So these all fall into the second category that I was talking about. So it's places where there's not necessarily a super strong vegan movement yet, but the local trad- traditional cuisine just happens to already be very vegan-friendly, and that might be for religious reasons or geographic or other kind of cultural reasons. Wow. Um, yeah, and the reason that I focused on these most popular cuisines was because I wanted the book to be useful not just for people who were traveling to a particular country, uh, but also really anyone who's eating out even if it's just in their own hometown, and is looking for a delicious vegan meal. Uh, And it might be in a place where there aren't many vegetarian restaurants or vegan restaurants, but if you can go to a restaurant that serves one of these ethnic cuisines, so for example, Chinese, Italian, Middle Eastern, Thai, Indian... Um, all of these have lots of dishes that are already vegan or very easily veganized. So mm-hmm. I point those out in the, di- in the book and show people, you know, what to ask for, what to look for, and also give a bit of history about the cuisine and explain why it is so vegan friendly. Oh, that's exciting. That's a great read,
0: even if you're not going to be traveling. Although, in, when you were speaking, you reminded me of a country that was already on my bucket list that I think fits into both of your categories. And that's Israel. Huge, uh, vegan. Yes, a huge yes. vegan population, but also uh, a traditional cuisine with a lot of veggie stuff. That's
2: absolutely true. Yeah, that's a great example of one that fits into both of those categories. So you have something going on called Number One Book 10 Lives Campaign. Tell us mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, so One Book, Ten Lives is the hashtag that I'm using to uh, promote this campaign. And basically, for every copy of Veggie Planet that's sold, I'm donating part of the proceeds to the Humane League, which is an organi- organization that does wonderful work um, to. Uh, in, do grassroots kind of uh, information educational campaigns about uh, reducing your meat intake and and switching to a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle. And they also work with companies as well to um, to reduce animal suffering in animal agriculture. So one book, ten lives. Uh, The reason I chose that is because based on the uh, statistics that have been provided by animal charity evaluators, they estimate that uh, from the amount that's uh, donated for every book, that's enough to spare 10 animals from a life of misery in industrial agriculture. So for every book, we're sparing 10 lives, which is pretty amazing. Ooh, And
0: that's something that other authors might be able to jump on to. Absolutely. Wow, lots of lives. I love that. That's beautiful. So Wendy is the nomadic vegan all over everywhere. You will find her at thenomadicvegan.com. On Facebook, she's nomadic.vegan. Twitter, nomadic underscore vegan. We'll put all of that on the show notes as well as uh, an Amazon link so that you can get your very own copy of Veggie Planet. In our last minute, Wendy, people are wondering, how do you get to travel for 18 years? Just uh, give us give us the quick picture of what mm, it's like to be a perennial traveler.
2: Yeah, in terms of how do I finance my travels or... Um, I'm sure that's what, what
0: people want to know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I've done lots of different things over the years, and I have to say now... It's, there's so many more opportunities than there were 18 years ago. You know, there are lots of people who are becoming digital nomads and they're doing some kind of work from their laptop, whether it's, you know, freelance writing or translation or, SEO, you know, all kinds of computer-based things. Uh, It's really easy to do from anywhere in the world now. Um, And that is what I do. I mean, obviously, I do blogging and writing and uh, and working on, you know, building up my career as an author. Um, I also do some freelance translation work as well. I have a background in translation. But before that, um, there were a few years when I was working at major sporting events like the Olympic Games and Rugby World Cup and things like that, which was something that I got into. Into, through my husband, because his background is in sports journalism. Uh, before that, I was a tour guide in Rome, uh, giving walking tours around the city. And those were all just things that I kind of stumbled into. Those were the longest lasting, but there were other, you know, short-lived things as well. I worked on an organic farm in Tuscany for a few weeks. So there are lots of opportunities, and its I really believe it's just a matter of making yourself open to those opportunities, and then they will come your way, and you'll find a way to make it work.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. It's inspiring to hear from somebody who's really living their dream, living the dream, Wendy Werneth, The Nomadic Vegan. The book is Veggie Planet. You will love it. And hopefully, one day, one day you will get to that exotic, out-of-the-way destination of New York City. Yes, one
2: day. still haven't been there yet, but I will make it there. Oh,
0: well, we'll go eat some exotic food when you do. Thank you so much. Good luck with the book and with the campaign. Everybody else, stay with us. We're going to be back with Nathaniel Altman And, oh boy, do we need it, the nonviolent revolution.
1: Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with Mobile Giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Does the idea of being a vegetarian or a vegan intrigue you? Is it something you've pondered? Listen each week as Victoria Moran, author of Main Street Vegan, shows you how to make the shift to a sustainable lifestyle for both you and the planet. Each week you'll learn about the latest on the vegan life. It's not just for celebrities and moguls, but for people just like you who want to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Guests will range from unity ministers to vegan authors, activists, physicians, chefs, and even some of those glittery celebs. There'll be recipes, ideas, tips for going vegan at your own pace, and ways to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time for Main Street Vegan, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Main Street Vegan Show, which, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I announced this last week, but I'm going to announce it again. We are nominated for a Veg News Veggie Award. Oh my gosh. And you know, every podcast that's nominated is so fabulous and everybody deserves to win. So uh, let's just make a game out of this. I hope you'll vote. I hope you'll vote for somebody. Oh, heck, I hope you'll vote for us. You go to VegNews.com slash Veggie Awards. Two Gs. Again, Veggie Awards. We'll put that on the show notes as well. Would so appreciate your vote. And and the Veg news people are, are really lovely. They think of everything. So they have turned the voting into a contest. Two, and you could win, oh gosh, a a year's worth of uh, coconut ice cream. You could win a vegan Caribbean cruise for two, just for voting for your favorite podcast and and your favorite practically everything in the vegan world. And uh, they've also done another cool thing. If one of the multiple choice answers isn't your favorite thing, they let you write in what is. So you can let Veg News know about some kind of product that uh, you think is cool that maybe they don't know about. So thanks to Veg News for the nomination and thanks to all of you guys for voting. I appreciate it a lot. And you know we have a sponsor and they are healthiq.com a fun educational site with quizzes to test your knowledge for healthy living, but they have also teamed with many of the country's top life insurance companies to offer savings on life insurance, that's the kind that protects your family if you're no longer here, to a couple of groups of people that have been shown by valid studies to do better and live longer than the general population. So one group are certain elite athletes, and the other group is guess who? Us. I think it's so cool. It's vegans. Because the literature shows that we live longer and live well, we now get to save some money because of that. So check out how much you can save with no charge and no obligation by going to healthiq.com slash mainstreet. That's healthiq.com slash mainstreet. And we will put that on the main street vegan show notes as well. Just go to MainStreetVegan.net, click on podcast, and you'll get the drop-down, and you can go to the show notes where you'll have the URLs for all of our guests and some other interesting info that you can read in case you're walking your dog or driving your car and can't write all these things down. We aim to please. Oh, my gosh. I think... Of all the people that I've ever had on the show, I have known Nathaniel Altman the longest. Nathaniel Altman is a Brooklyn-based writer, teacher, and counselor who has authored more than 20 books on spirituality, peace studies, healthy diets, alternative healing, nature, and relationship. His books include Eating for Life, Ahimsa, Dynamic Compassion, The Nonviolent Revolution, Sacred Trees, Healing Springs, and Sacred Water. Welcome, Nathaniel.
3: Thank you, Victoria.
0: Such a pleasure, such a pleasure. Now, let me just give you a tiny bit of background. When I told you that I had known Nathaniel forever and a day... Way back in the early 1970s, we were both working at the headquarters of the Theosophical Society in America in the Chicago suburb of Wheaton, Illinois, and Nathaniel was working on his first book, Eating for Life, which was the first book about vegetarianism to be published in North America in the whole 20th century. Now, Nathaniel had a manual typewriter, and I had a fancy electric typewriter in the library where I worked. So he would bring me each chapter so that I could type it on my fancy typewriter. And oh as I yeah. typed, I thought, well, Nathaniel has written a book. Maybe someday I could write a book. Well, Nathaniel, I haven't caught up to you with 20, but uh, number 13 is on its way. And so. I think
3: you've sold more copies than <laughs> I have. Now.
0: I don't know about that. But it's it's just, it's absolutely wonderful to be sitting next to you in my dining room in harlem these many years later
3: and you've always been an inspiration to me too as well as many other people as oh, you know
0: bless you well i'm really interested today and anybody listening live or listening during this uh, week that that this show is is coming out um there's a lot of talk in the world about war and nuclear war and things that no one wants to hear about or think about and yet it's uh I think, in a lot of people's minds today. And it seems that a book called The Nonviolent Revolution could never be more relevant. So tell us about that and about your connection to nonviolence.
3: Well, it's, it's a, a very complex subject. But what I think is important is that we see working for peace as a total picture uh, some people, for example, will protest war and then they will kill animals for food. And other people will uh, you know, promote a healthy diet and they will be cruel to their uh, family members or cruel to their, uh, their animal companions. So the idea, I think, is to have, try to have an integrated, holistic approach towards nonviolence. And this would include, first of all, educating ourselves about the the dangers of war and how horrible things are. You know, right now with talk about uh, war going on, uh, we need to see what, what really could happen. You know, millions of people killed, millions of people being displaced. It's not a simple thing where you have a war and it's over. It's extremely complex, tremendous amount of suffering, tremendous amount of damage to the planet, to people, to animals. We need to really see how terrible it is and say we cannot continue this way. We have been doing this for many years. It hasn't worked. We've had 12,000 wars in the last uh, 2,000 years. We need to look at a different approach. And the nonviolent revolution talks about, focuses a lot on the Jane idea of dynamic compassion, not just being passive towards war or uh Not doing things, but actually uh, working in every way in your profession, in the way you eat, in the way that you talk to people, in the way that you relate to people every day, in the way that you even relate to the news. When you hear the news, what's what's the truth? What's going on? What is really happening? So it it involves a lot of different aspects of our lives. And that's why I, I wrote the book, because it is a holistic view and also a very dynamic view, and also very much tailored to your individual needs and desires. You can't do everything, but you could do things that you're focused on. Some people work on preserving trees and protecting the forests. Some people work, as, as you do, to defend animals and help people become healthier and more integrated. Other people might be Peace activists, some people may be diplomats, some people may be poets or artists, and everyone doing their part together, I think, makes it can make a huge difference. And this is something we need to see when we're feeling a lot of gloom and doom about what we read in the papers or what we hear online, is there's a huge movement of people towards goodwill, people who want peace, people who want to, to have integration in the world. And I think this is something worthwhile doing, something we must focus on.
0: I think that the devil's advocate question here is, but do we have any power? It seems like there are billions of people who want peace, but if there are half a dozen people with power who don't want it, the billions don't matter. Is there really power in this dynamic practice of nonviolence in our own lives?
3: I think there is. I think that... Each person, For example, every day we we interact with 50, 60 people uh, or more uh, every day, depending on the work that we do. And that we can either be a fountain of peace and this will carry on. It will affect other people, then they will affect other people and so on. It's kind of like when you throw a stone into a pool. It will affect every molecule in that pool. And I think people need to understand that we have a lot more power than we think we do. And also there needs to be an end to passivity, like, what, 60% of people don't even vote in this country. And that, I think, is a very bad thing. People need to participate in as many activities as they can, whether it's working you know, to, to create a good curriculum at your school or working to protect a park or working to uh, improve the lot of animals, whatever that is. People need to be more active. I'm afraid a lot of us are not. I'm not as active as I should be, but many people just need to do more. And I think that could help make a difference. And, of course, we would elect people who would represent uh, these ideas more.
0: Do you think there's a spiritual component, too, that there's actually something energetic about believing in peace, believing in nonviolence?
3: It's a very powerful energy. You know, you mentioned earlier that a person spoke about veganism in Taiwan and got 2,500 Yeah, Will Tuttle had a huge
0: audience in Taiwan.
3: That's an incredible thing. And all over the world you have this happening. And I think very often when you have important changes like this happening, other forces become more magnified. I personally have much more optimism about peace in the world than war in the world. In spite of what we see.
0: Yeah.
3: You know, I do believe there are more people of goodwill. There are more people who want peace there's more universality you know what's so incredible about the internet you could talk to people all over the world when we were kids this was never easy never possible you'd write a letter a week two later you might get an answer and now you could communicate with people from all backgrounds and this has a lot of potential for good and i'm not crazy about technology but it has its good points And the idea of being able to break down barriers among people of different religions, different races, different cultures. uh, It's a wonderful thing. And I think this adds to that energy of peace in the world, despite all the other stuff. uh, You know, there have been fewer wars in the last few years than before. Not not that that's uh, something to crow about, but there actually the violence in the world has gone down but of course the media promotes this tremendously they focus on something they won't let it go and then suddenly they drop it and move on to the next story and this is something i'm very suspicious of and i think people need to always question what we read in the media and what we hear and i do think a lot has to do with kind of stimulating people upsetting people making them afraid and then we feel powerless And I think we need to not hook into that.
0: Mm, You're so right. And one of the other great things about technology is it does enable us to be our own media. So you and I just did a little Facebook Live telling people about this podcast. You mentioned someone in that that some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with, but I think everybody needs to know her, and that is Peace Pilgrim. Who was she?
3: Oh, Peace Pilgrim was a a really interesting woman. I know that you uh, met her and. and had a contact with her as well. Uh, she walked around the United States, I think, six times back and forth without any financial support. And she just talked about peace, you know, indiv- uh, peace within, and then peace among people, peace among groups, peace in the community, and peace among nations. And what impressed me about her was her authenticity. She was very real. She was very natural and very tough. I found her both extremely gentle but she was very tough
0: you have to be pretty tough to walk across this country six times without any
3: you know (laughs) she would sometimes sleep on the side of the road yeah and she never asked anyone for anything Mm -hmm. everything that she got was offered to her and uh, you know you go to peacepilgrim.org and you can get free literature about her there have been a number of books about her videos about her Uh, she was a real inspiration and I like the idea of the individual one-on-one. And one of the things she said that I always remembered is, uh, the world is like a mirror. What you give to people, you will get back. Mm -hmm. And I found that really true. If I'm in a lousy mood, if I'm cranky and irritable, I say, gosh, everybody's so irritable today. (laughs) But I find when I, before I leave the house, very often I, I meditate so I can be connected and i leave the house with a happy face and Aww. i greet people and it really makes a difference and uh, you know we just had a woman who travels around the world i found that when i travel i tend to be very happy and people are incredibly nice to me and i say well that's interesting but i'm also nice to them and it makes you know you make connections around the world and i think in a way uh, this will help create a, a the world peace picture, it helps build the world peace picture mm. when people connect, when people get to know each other as people, when we drop the labels, when we see that we have a lot more in common, that we have difference. Wow. And I think when we talk about, you know, North Korea, we have a lot more in common with the Korean people than we have not in common. You know, you have concerned about your health, concerned about your children, concerned about the future want to have a good life. Well, these are things that we all share as human beings. And, of course, as you know, animals wish this as well. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book years ago about sacred trees. Trees also want to have peace, and they want to have a good life. So well, there's a lot more connectivity than than disconnectivity.
0: Wow, Nathaniel. I wish that as many people were listening to you on the Main Street Vegan Show as are watching CNN right now. <laughs> Maybe we can push for that. My favorite quotation from Peace Pilgrim was she would always say, live up to the highest light you have and more Mm. light will be given you.
1: Wow. And and that's a lot.
0: And I think, you know, a lot of us and people listening to this program, we have a lot of light. You know, we know about veganism. We know about things that other people have never heard of, or maybe they just think it's some kind of weird thing. We have all this, and so we have to live it.
3: That's what she focused on the most. She said, we have all the information we need. You know, We, we have a lot of spiritual information. We have practical information. The hardest part is to put it into practice, mm-hmm. and it is. I mean, I've been studying uh, ahimsa, nonviolence, for many, many years. I fall short a lot, a lot more than I'd like to, to admit. But we have to do our best, and we need to... You know, every day see what can I do? How can I make things better? And this could be even in a relationship you have with someone. If you're not getting along with someone, if there's a misunderstanding, it's important to try to, to heal that misunderstanding, whatever it is, and do the best we can. And if it doesn't resolve, at least we can have goodwill towards the person we may not be getting along with. And that's a choice that we make. It's not something, you know, whether... If two people aren't talking to each other, that's one issue, but you could also have good feelings toward that person, and that will make a difference because every little thing we do adds to the total peace picture. I really do believe that, and that's the main reason why I wrote my book, so I could kind of give people a lot of options of what can you do, what are you drawn to do, and then uh, hopefully do them.
0: Right, and you've recently revised the book, and and brought it out in a new edition, is that because so many things changed or because you think we need it more now than ever?
3: Uh, Both of those things. I I have to say that after the recent election, I decided to to write it um, because I was feeling kind of depressed. And sometimes when you have certain emotions, emotions are very good, even if you're depressed, to help you move forward. And I wanted to revise the book because there were issues, for example, it focused a lot on the Cold War with Russia at the time, 1988. Mm -hmm. That's not the same dynamic anymore. So I had to update a lot of these things. I found out that we're spending a lot more on armaments than we did then, so I needed to update all of those things. But I wanted to add more things about the environment. Of course, I updated things about veganism and environmental protection. And I also focused a little bit more on... The idea of truth, because what's happening now in this world, there's a lot of untruth lies being thrown around, and I feel that this destroys the fabric of society. So I focused on that a lot more, the idea of telling the truth to be in truth and to discern when truth is not being spoken. Mm -hmm. That's one of the problems with technology is that there is so much stuff And information going out, a lot of it is not only not true, it's completely false, it's incomplete. And this is something that confuses people and then we feel powerless and we can't move forward. Mm. And also people go off on tangents because they believe something that's not true. So the idea of part of nonviolence, and Gandhi spoke about this, is satyagrahi, which is speaking the truth and standing by truth. And that's a tough subject to deal with because it's very easy for us to lie. A lot of us lie when we don't tell the complete story. And it's a challenge, but we need to focus on that. So in this edition, I spent more time talking about it.
0: That's all so important. Now, you mentioned Gandhi. Gandhi and nonviolence were very much a part of the way veganism was presented to you and me back in the Mm -hmm. 70s from Jay Dinshaw who was pretty much the big vegan teacher of the day. You don't hear a lot about Gandhi anymore, and you don't really hear the term nonviolence in vegan circles the way that we did back then. How can we get that integrated again?
3: Well, I think the idea of ahimsa is more than nonviolence. It's active, dynamic compassion. And I kind of feel more comfortable with that because it's a positive term mm-hmm. and it can be applied immediately in any, any any way. You know, it could be if someone is, is abusing a tree, you know, cutting something. You just, whoa, 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 just a second, let's protect this tree. Or you put a <laughs> fence around the tree or something. A little act, but it's a dynamic act of compassion. And I think that's what we could focus on more is the idea of dynamic compassion, and that's what Jay Dinshaw talked a lot about. He focused on Ahimsa. and He's, if not the first, one of the first people who, who talked about Ahimsa in the United States. And uh, I've used my book has a subtitle of Ahimsa, but the t- the main title is Nonviolent Revolution.
0: So today, it just seems to me that. There's a lot of discord within people individually. And maybe this is the human condition and it's always been this way. Is there a way that we can live with dynamic harmlessness toward ourselves?
3: This is a very big issue because a lot of us were raised with self-hatred and not feeling worthy. And certainly I would count myself uh, in that group. And I think the main thing is, is to the idea of mindfulness, I think, is very important. And, of course, you could practice mindfulness by walking in the park or just being quiet, or some people use different meditation techniques, some people use yoga, some people use journaling techniques, some people use prayer. There are many, many ways that people can reach a state of of mindfulness, and hopefully we see things more in perspective and have more integration. Uh, When I wrote about uh, the book about trees, I spent a lot of time in the forest, as you might imagine, and I find that being in nature is a very good way to become more grounded and see our, our natural place in the world. And it also, I think, increases our, our our feeling of connectivity with the world around us, which I think increases self-integration. So I always recommend go to the park, go to the forest, take a walk, go to the seashore, whatever you're attracted to,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and maybe practice mindfulness there. and And also be aware of the times when we are feeling down at ourselves and saying, you know, give yourself a break. You know, you're your best friend. Would you treat your best friend this way? Of course not. So it's important to kind of see that and always reflect on it.
0: Well, Nathaniel, since we do go back, I want to go back a little bit with you now and find a little bit of the history because you're saying such beautiful and and relevant things. But just for our readers who don't know you, who haven't yet discovered your 20 books – what brought you to ahimsa
3: oh let's see i've always had currents of violence in my own nature and i used to cover it up with a a very nice face and i got involved in a group called the pathwork where you're able to it was involved psychology spirituality and also physical dynamics like something called bioenergetics and i worked with this for, for several years and it kind of help me bring out the negativity. Uh, I think this is often useful, for ex- but you must do it in a way that will not hurt other people. So sometimes if I'm angry, I will lie down on my bed and start hitting the mattress and kicking, and then I would get this anger out, and then I would kind of sit back and then see what's really going on here. And I found that that was very helpful in allowing me to see things better. And I remember many years ago, I was in a group where I was using a bataka against people who were meat eaters. And it was really revealing because, you know, I said, you know, you're going to die with this diet. It's going to kill you. And then someone said, and I hope so. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I hope so. And it brought out a really negative current that I'm very ashamed of. And I don't think I've even talked about it before on the air. But it really brought into focus as a negative side. We need to work with that. Recognize it and work with it.
0: And just to be very clear, this was in a, a group, like a kind of support. group. Yes. You weren't really doing violence.
3: Absolutely not. I, okay. The pillow was being hit a lot, and okay. there was a lot of <laughs> noise. But it was, it was, and there was a, a lot of healing came through with that. So I think it's important to recognize that we do have negative sides to us. Mm-hmm. We do have a low, what they call a lower nature. But it's important to understand it and embrace it and then work in a positive way after that. I wasn't able to write The Nonviolent Revolution until I went through that at that particular event Mm. because I was blocked, I didn't know what to do. And then this unblocked my creative energy and the compassion more. So what I'm saying is don't be afraid of looking at the negativity.
0: So also in a little bit of historical perspective, when you got the idea for Eating for Life in the early 1970s, Being vegetarian was completely weird. Being vegan was unheard of. I know nowadays, you know, there there are different um, belief systems, different philosophies within the the vegan movement on a kind of, I think of it as a purity to pragmatism kind of of scale. And I always say back in the 70s, veganism was really pure because in this country there were about five vegans. (laughs) It was easy to, you know, toe a party line. I wasn't even vegan. I kept trying, and I would fall off and, and go back. So what caused you, as a young man, to want to write a book? I mean, I thought at that time Tolstoy writes books. Dickens writes books. People my age don't write books.
3: Well, I became a vegetarian back in 1969. And I was always a person who didn't like eating meat, and I had conflicts about it. But other people said, you're going to die if you don't eat meat. So this is the basic background of it. And uh, I decided at one point to become vegetarian. And when I was at the University of Wisconsin, one of my friends said, oh, you're a vegetarian. Why don't you go to Oscar Mayer and see how they see what they do to the animals? So I decided to go. And it was absolutely the most traumatic event I have ever been involved in, in my life it was visiting a kill floor and when i was finished with that i said oh my god there has to be vegetarian book and where is one and there wasn't anything written in the states the last book i had seen was written in 1956 in england mm-hmm. and my parents were both scientists my mother was bio- involved in biology that was her degree and my father was an engineer so i wanted to write a book that would appeal to them So I got a lot of documented information, you know, I went to studies, went to, you know, looked up nutritional studies, and did a lot of research, and that's how the book came about. And I wrote it while I was on the staff of the Theosophical Society of America. I'd work out in the gardens during the day, and cleaning basements and whatever we needed to do, and then in the evening I would work on the book, and I finished it in, what, a couple of months, and thanks to you, it got done a lot quicker. <laughs> well,
0: I, I remember that time so well, and I remember when you talked about that Oscar Meyer visit. Now, do you recall when you saw, and tell me if I'm not quoting this just right, but there was a particularly vile bucket full of byproducts. And you asked a worker if that was going to be sausage, and he said, no, that's too good for sausage. That's going to be medicine.
3: <laughs> that I don't remember, but I remember them saying, we use everything but the squeal. Because it was mostly pigs being yes, killed. Yes, yes. And there were cattle as well. Yeah. But it was, it was really horrendous. I don't recommend doing it, but it really inspired me to write a book.
0: Well, and in know, that
3: way, it was a very good experience for me.
0: Well, I do recommend doing it, and I was able to do it um, oh, really? later in, in, the, uh, in the early 90s when I, I, I was figure. living in the central Missouri Ozarks hmm. and commented to a woman that I'd met down there that I'd been vegetarian for a really long time, vegan for quite a while, but I'd never been to a slaughterhouse, and she said, "Oh, well, my husband's friend owns a slaughterhouse. If you smile real pretty, he'll show you anything you want to see." And I spent a day there—a
3: day, an
0: entire day—in oh the God. in the surgical garb, and you know all so that they you have wouldn't to let do. women
3: into the kill floor Really? at Oscar Mayer. Oh they my said, goodness. and one of the women on the tour said, "Why not? Just you'll never eat meat again."
0: <laughs> well, what a terrible thing that would be. Yeah, I think it's very important, not necessarily for people who get it, for people who say, okay, I don't need to know that, I know enough, I'm going to be vegan. But for people who say, "Yeah, it can't be that bad. Well, okay, if it's not that bad, go look. Of course, nowadays, I think it would be like getting into Fort Knox. It's yeah, just impossible. a lot of them don't
3: want people to visit anymore. No,
0: and, and even just the workers. I mean, one of my biggest surprises of that day in the slaughterhouse was the tremendous sympathy that I felt for the workers. Sure. I thought I was going to just hate them all. But I saw these these lovely men that had no other place to work. This was a very small town that was kind of away from everything. And they were standing in a refrigerator in blood. The smells, the sounds, it, it was like just living in a horror movie for the people as well as the animals, and you know, people just don't think about that. People just reach for the whatever it is at the the carryout.
3: Yeah, we need to find out and know where our food comes from, and I, and even for as vegetarians, the people who toil in the fields, the people who are are exposed to pesticides and and you know, picking strawberries in a storm. Uh, they're treated very badly. They, they don't make money. They're treated badly, yet we enjoy these wonderful things. And it could be, you know, all of agriculture needs to be examined. But certainly what happens in the slaughterhouses, for me, was the most horrible thing I've seen. I haven't been to Syria. Yes. I haven't seen war. But in my experience, that was the worst thing. Yes. And the, I think what bothered me the most is the mechanized death of it, the mechanized aspect, and the animals who just Entities that were killed, yes. and that upset me tremendously.
0: It is uh, it is an experience, if someone has not had it or cannot have it or doesn't want to have it, to, to just be able to read a book like, like Eating for Life and, and really get the, the picture of, of that. So I can't believe, Nathaniel, that we're winding down to the end here. But I do want to ask you, writer to writer, and I know a lot of people listening have written books or they have a book in them, they want to write. The writing life is very different now than it was back in the day, and I guess the reading life is very different now. There's so much competition Mm -hmm. for people's time. So what's it like for you, having been a writer for so long and having this beautiful legacy of books?
3: Well, I feel happy about the books I've written, and they've been on many, many different subjects, but the bottom line of them is about healing. And I think it's important that whatever we write will bring benefit to other people, or we, or that's at least the intent, that it will bring benefit to other people. Well, it's something I'm very happy about. I love writing. I have more trouble with promotion and the <laughs> business side of it. Some people are better at that than I am, but I really do enjoy the creativity of writing, and I... Just hope more people will, will get involved in it.
0: Yeah, and, and in reading, I was just thinking the other day that that back in the 90s and the early 2000s, Oprah brought about this resurgence of reading with her book club and her celebration of authors. We need somebody to do that now because there, there's a way of understanding that you get from reading a book that you don't get from just processing content.
3: Yeah, I love books and no, I've put out a few books that are in ebook book form, like Nonviolent Revolutionism, both. Personally, I like having a book in my hand <laughs> and reading. And I think it's a very good, you know, it is a good thing. It was a wonderful invention, you know, thousands of years ago.
0: Yes. Well, for whether you want the ebook or the paper book, I cannot recommend highly enough The Nonviolent Revolution by Nathaniel Altman. It will really change your life, your relationship with with other people, other animals, with yourself, and oh my gosh, maybe it will even ripple out there to this world that needs it so much and uh, put a little more ahimsa in the place of some of of the uh, fear and and anger that, that we see so much around us. To everyone listening, oh my gosh, thank you so much. This time has gone so quickly. Thanks to Wendy Werneth, the nomadic vegan, to Nathaniel Altman, the book is The Nonviolent Revolution. Thanks to our engineer, Jeff Comfort, to all of the wonderful people at Unity Online Radio, and to you, the listener, most of all. God bless you. Eat your veggies. and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
3: There's a story about a man who was looking for a new home. When he arrived at the gate of a city, he asked, Tell me, what kind of people live here? The gatekeeper replied, Tell me about the people in the place you've come from. He answered, They were angry, self-centered, and dishonest. The gatekeeper said, They're just like that here. You wouldn't be happy. Move on. Later, another stranger arrived and asked the same question. The gatekeeper said, Tell me about the people in your last town. She answered, Oh, they were wonderful, kind, generous, and loving. The gatekeeper replied, the people of this town are just like that. Come on in. You'll be happy here. Often we see the world not as it is, but as we are. If you want to change the world, start with yourself. Be the kind of person you wish the rest of the world would be.
1: This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.